Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Josh Nob, Professor of Cognitive Science and Philosophy at Yale University. And he's here to discuss the true self. Josh Nob, welcome. Hi, Matt. So what does this expression, true self, mean exactly at an intuitive level? Like, is there an example of, like, when that would come up in an everyday situation? Well... People use the concept of a true self in philosophy, but it's not at all a concept that we only see in philosophical talk. It's also one that we just see ordinarily in the way people talk about their lives. So it's the notion that we're getting at when you say something like, who is this person really deep down? Who are they at the core? Who are they in their real hearts? I think you see it very often, for example, in romantic relationships. That a lot of times you'll see someone who is, say, for example, involved with some person that you might think seems to be acting kind of like a jerk. You feel really bad about him. But then the person who is involved in this romantic relationship might say to you, ah, yeah, but deep down, he's actually a good guy. And it's that notion that we're trying to get at, this notion of what someone really is deep down. So you've done some research on how people make use of this concept of the true self. Maybe what you just described was an example of that in everyday reasoning. So maybe if I want to justify somebody's action or I want to explain you know, why they were doing something, what they were trying to accomplish, I might make use of this notion of true self. So what were some of the things that you found when you did this research? Well, to a large degree, we were interested in the question, which part of the self do people see as the true self? And a lot of the work we were doing was against the background of sort of two obvious views you might have about it. So one view that you see a lot of times throughout the whole history of philosophy is the idea that the true self can in some way be identified with reason. So you might think, for example, suppose that you're addicted to heroin, you're trying to quit, there's some part of you that's kind of has this craving for another shot of heroin. But then you think, no, I'm against that, I really don't want to, that's the wrong thing to do. Then you might think to some degree, the more you can act on what your reason is really telling you, the more you can choose not to take another hit of heroin, the more then you're expressing your true self. The more you give in to this craving, then the less you're expressing your true self. So there's this kind of view that a lot of people have. Somehow, maybe your reasoning, what you really think on reflection, that's your true self. But there's also another view you might have that's almost exactly the opposite of that. You might think, you know, what your true self really is, is this part of you that's sort of the more emotional part, the more visceral part, the more immediate or intuitive part. Maybe it's in those moments, for example, when you're completely drunk or overcome with emotion. Maybe it's then, most of all, that your true self comes out. And to the extent that we're thinking carefully, reflecting, reasoning about things, then maybe we're only clouding over the true self. So the question we're trying to get at is, how do people ordinarily understand the true self? Which part of the self do people ordinarily think is the part of you that really is the true self? So we saw an example in which the drug addict maybe has a strong, I guess we want to call it like an emotional need to take some heroin, 
but that person's rational capacity trumps their feeling and they realize, no, this is not the prudent thing to do to take heroin. I'm going to fight back against my feeling and do the right thing. That's a narrative in which many people might say that person's true self was their rational analytical self. Is there a scenario in which somebody might say the converse as in, no, 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 this person's true self was the emotional part? Well, let's just try it on you. Suppose that now we reverse the story. So we just switch which goal was the goal of the rational part and which goal was the goal of the emotional part. So now imagine there's someone in high school and she's thinking about what she should do. And then she thinks on reflection, what she should really do is start using more hard drugs. So she thinks and she thinks, given the social structure of her high school, will make her a lot more popular if she does that. It's definitely worth it. She's going to go ahead and do it. But now imagine that as she's going to go ahead and do it, she feels this pull in the opposite direction. Just some emotional craving within her is sort of pushing against it. Something about it just doesn't feel right. She completely rejects that. She thinks it makes no sense at all. That on rational reflection, she thinks what I should really do is just go ahead and try these drugs. So now we've reversed the whole situation. In that case, what do you think? Would your intuition be that her true self is the rational part, the part that's telling her to go ahead and do it? Or the more emotional part, the part that's telling her not to do it? I guess I have an intuition that something like her final decision maybe is her true self. Like at first she was inclined to do this, but after either thinking about it more or seeing what she felt about it more, whatever the final decision is, is that's her, that's her true self. Oh, so whatever you decide in the end, that's maybe what your true self is. Yeah, like given enough time to really be careful or something maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this thing that you're getting at, this doesn't really have to do with the main issue that we take up in our research, but there is some evidence that whatever you do at the very end of your life, what you do after the longest period of time has elapsed, people tend to think of that as your true self. So suppose you lead a really terrible life for most of your life doing all sorts of horrible things, and then you have this moment where you change and you start to behave really nicely toward people. Then two weeks later, you're hit by a car and your life ends. Almost your entire life you were being cruel to other people. In the very end, you were being nice. In that situation, a lot of people actually say, Deep down, what that shows is that your true self was to be a morally good person. So maybe there's something that you're getting at here that people tend to think whatever you choose in the end, that's your true self. And if you look at like Christian saints and whatnot, I mean, this story comes up over and over again. They lived a life of horrible moral depravity and excess for the first two thirds of their life. And then they suddenly had a conversion and then it came around. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like this story about Christian saints is a really interesting one. This idea that A lot of times when people think, see someone who is living a life of depravity and excess, they have this feeling, yeah, but deep down in that person, there's some deeper thing calling them to have a morally good life. But the really striking thing is how rarely we would have the opposite sense. That if we knew someone who's really kind-hearted and helpful, we wouldn't as much be tempted to think, no, but deep down within her, there's something calling her to be sort of more callous, annoying, and unhelpful. Yeah, that's kind of weird, right? It does seem like this idea of somebody's true self we it seems like we hear less often stories about like the other way around the first two-thirds of their life they were wonderful people and then they you know <laughs> then they went off the deep end like and then they found their true and self. then that was who they really were all along like right that narrative seems less common right and i think you'd see it even outside the domain of morality so if you think about someone who was a poet for example i think there's this kind of narrative that you really often hear that someone was this mediocre poet 
just kind of rehearsing the same kind of approaches that other poets had. And then she was able to get in touch with her true self and create a truly great work of poetry. But I think people would almost never think of the opposite. They would almost never think, well, there was this poet who was creating truly great works of poetry, but that greatness was only on the surface. Then eventually she was able to get in touch with her true self and create the completely mediocre works of poetry that her true self was always sort of calling her toward. There seems to be something really fundamental that we associate the true self with the part of you that's really good, the part of you that involves either greatness at the level of artistic accomplishment or goodness at the level of morality. That's a really nice point. Yeah, I think I'm actually puzzled by that. Like, it does seem even weirder to imagine this narrative of somebody starting to produce terrible poetry late in life and then someone coming along and saying, ah, yes, that was that person's. Really, they were terrible at it all along. So why would the true self have to be good in this way? Because intuitively, if you just think of like, what does true self literally mean? It means like the person you really are. And what does good mean? Well, whatever good means. Those seem to be different things. And yet there seems to be this implicit idea of the good just built into the notion of the true self, maybe. Right. That's exactly the topic of our research, that we were trying to figure out which of these two things people think is the true self, the part of you that's more emotional or visceral, or the part of you that's sort of more rational, thoughtful. And across a whole series of experiments, what we find is exactly the thing that you're talking about, that it's not that people always choose the emotional part, and it's not that people always choose the rational part, it's that they always think of as your true self, whichever of those parts is calling you to do the thing that they themselves regard as good. So suppose that you and I have completely opposite views about which part of someone is the good part. You think it's the rational part. I think it's the emotional part. Then we're going to end up having actually correspondingly opposite views about which part of them is their true self. You'll think that one part of them is their true self, and I'll think the other part is the true self. So you've done some research into people's psychological associations between these things. What were some of the things that you found? Well, so that to begin with, I should just say that all of this research was done with my colleague, George Newman. We were just wondering how people's moral judgments, their judgments about what really is morally right and morally wrong, affect their intuitions about which part of you is your true self. So to get at this, we gave people a number of different kinds of vignettes. I think if you just try taking using these vignettes on yourself, you can kind of get some intuition about what's going on in these cases. So in one case, for example, we asked participants, imagine this evangelical preacher named Mark. So Mark travels the world, bringing to people this message that gay sex is a sin, but that you can be released from this sin through the power of Jesus. So you can be cured of your homosexuality. And then imagine now that Mark has this problem. The problem is that he himself is actually gay. So he believes that gay sex is a moral sin, but he himself is drawn on this kind of visceral level actually to be with another man. As a result, he feels this conflict. And then participants in this condition were asked, which of these two parts of Mark's self is his true self? Is it his moral belief that this is a sin, or is it his emotional reaction that he's just drawn emotionally to do this? So we had different groups of participants. Some participants were politically conservative, and some group participants were politically liberal. The politically liberal participants tend to say, this sort of more emotional, visceral part of him, that is his true self. By contrast, the conservative participants tended to say that the moral judgment was his true self. The part of him that was saying, this is morally wrong, is his true self. Then in another condition, the case was just simply reversed. So participants were told, imagine a person who travels the world bringing to people this message that people of all sexual orientations should be treated equally. So he thinks there's nothing wrong with being gay. And then 
sometimes we have these bad feelings about gay people, we can be released from that through these certain kinds of techniques. But then he has a problem. His problem is that he himself often has these visceral feelings of disgust toward gay people. And then again, participants were asked, which is his true self? Is it this more rational part, more reflective part, that says that people of all sexual orientations should be treated equally? Or is it this more emotional part that has this visceral antipathy toward gay people? And there, the whole situation was reversed. The liberal participants tended to say it's the more reflective part, the moral judgment, that is his true self. And the conservative participants tend to say the opposite. That feeling that's coming up in him, this feeling of antipathy toward gay people, that is his true self. So what we're seeing across the two cases just seems to be that it's not that participants think either that the reasoning part of you is your true self or that the emotional part of you is your true self. Rather, participants just seem to think whichever part of yourself they themselves think is the good part, that is your true self. I mean, this is interesting in the context of philosophy because a lot of philosophers have just got out on a limb, gone whole hog for like, no, you should always listen to the rational part. No, you should always listen to the emotional part, You know, depending on who we're looking at, defending one of those two ideas. And it seems like maybe a big takeaway from this experiment is that that sort of thing is not the main factor determining whether we think of some behavior as expressing a person's true self. The more relevant factor is whether we think that behavior is a good behavior to engage in. Yeah, exactly. So people seem to think deep down within you, there's something calling you toward the good. And then if the thing that's calling you toward the good is your reasoning, your reflection, they think that's the thing that's deep down within you. If the part that's calling you toward what they think is good is your emotions, your more visceral desires, then they think, no, that's the part that's deep down within you. So should our takeaway conclusion from this be that whenever anybody calls anything somebody else did an expression of their true self, really what they're doing is just expressing their approval or disapproval of the action. So, you know, the conservatives in the first case would say that the person who took the stance that gay sex was wrong, their sort of like rational self was their true self. But all that really is is them just expressing approval for condemning gay sex. And conversely, the people who said that that person's decision to give up what he was taught and, you know, follow his heart, as it were, and when he followed his heart, he was following his true self then, those people are basically, ah, what it boils down to is just they're expressing their approval for, I guess, people being able to engage in gay sex or whatever. Is that the takeaway? Yeah, I think there's something more going on here. I don't think it's just that we use this phrase true self in order to just express approval for things. I think that people really do feel that deep down within each of us, there's something calling us to do the thing that's right, to do whatever they themselves think actually is right. So in one study, for example, we told participants, imagine that someone's feeling a little bit confused about their life, and then one day they're in the forest and they just get lost. They're just lost in the forest, separated from all other human contact, just have a chance to really reflect on things, think about their life. And then participants in that case begin to think, well, it's in a situation like that that your true self would most fully come out. And so each group of participants then tends to say they would move in the direction that they themselves think is a morally good one. So the liberals tend to think, if you were lost in the forest, separated from everyone, and your true self came out, you'd become more liberal. And the conservatives tend to think, no, if you were lost in the forest, separated from everyone, and your true self came out, you'd become more conservative. It seems like there's really something going on here, not just a weird way that we express our approval, but a genuine belief that deep within anyone is this part calling them toward whatever is actually good. It's interesting. It almost seems like the implicit assumption behind that behavior is that 
our feelings about what's right and wrong, maybe that's ultimately what they are. Maybe like good and bad, my sense of good and bad, maybe that's just tracking people's true selves. And that's just a way of measuring the true self. Oh, that ultimately what it even is to say something's good or bad is just whether the true self is calling you toward it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And when I have moral reactions to things people do, maybe I'm just detecting whether their true self was involved or not. That's a great suggestion. So do you think maybe the more information we got about other people's true selves, if we could find it in some other way, do you think maybe that would change our view about what really is good or bad? It seems like that would be the way to test that. So far, we haven't done any experiments about that idea, but it's a great suggestion to follow up on further research. If you could somehow learn more about people's true selves, would it change your own view about what's actually morally good? Yeah, right. So we need an independent route of investigation into true self besides what we think is right or wrong, which I'm not sure exactly what that would be, but if we could find it. Yeah, maybe just what happens to people when they spend enough time in the forest. Right, we put people in the woods or on an (laughs) island. Yeah, exactly. It's a great suggestion. Yeah. One thing this reminds me of a lot is Plato's philosophy, and I mean, at least certain aspects of it. So, for example, the idea that doing the right thing is ultimately what will make anybody happy. What will lead any given person to live a happy life is doing the right thing. Those just line up. And another motif you find in a lot of Plato's philosophy is that ultimately we only really want to do good things. Like, so if something is bad, then I, it's, it's almost like by definition, I couldn't want to do it. Like I only want to do good things. So there are lots of these interesting connections, you know, between these concepts that pop up, I think throughout the philosophical canon, but it's really pronounced in ancient Greek philosophy. So now this discussion has got me wondering, have you and George Newman kind of like uncovered that secretly we're all walking around subconsciously thinking like Plato or something? Wait, that's a great suggestion. And actually, a lot of the work that we did on this topic was very much sort of coming out of that tradition of thinking about these ancient Greek philosophers, trying to sort of understand these concepts in the way that they did. And I think that you're really right, in particular, to draw this connection between this notion of the true self and the notion of happiness. So we do find exactly that kind of result. We find that when someone's behaving in a way that people regard as morally bad, people are really reluctant to say that that person can be truly happy. So if you say that someone has this morally debased life, she's living this life like Paris Hilton, just seeking celebrity, not having any real friends, not pursuing any real projects. Then if you say, despite that, she feels a lot of pleasure all the time, she feels very little negative emotion, she thinks that her life is going really well. And you ask participants, is she truly happy? Most participants say no. So participants are right around the midpoint of uh, rejecting the claim that she really is happy. It seems like a, a lot of what we get in romantic comedies is the idea that that's a bubble. Like, oh, sure, you can live that kind of life for a certain period of time, but eventually you're going to crack and you're going to realize you've never really been happy or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. It seems like these romantic comedies are tapping into something really fundamental about our understanding of the human mind. That we think, okay, on the surface, someone can be happy in those situations. There's always going to be something within them calling to them, telling them this life that you're leading is fundamentally empty. So if we identify a person's true self with behaving ethically, is that like some sort of like Pollyannish optimism about human nature? Like deep down, we're all great people. Even the most evil people, there's like an, there's an atom of goodness in them. You see this a lot, especially like in Star Wars even the most horrible people, they can be turned around eventually. Like, have you and George Newman uncovered that that's sort of something we secretly all think? Yeah, it seems like people do have a sort of Star Wars picture that even within Darth Vader, there's something calling him toward the good. 
But I don't think that it's rightly understood as sort of a positive picture or a Pollyanna-ish picture. So if you look at people's ordinary judgments, you find that different people really differ in how positively they feel about other human beings. So some people think most human beings are really wonderful, and other people really explicitly say, I think most human beings are terrible. Human beings are awful. They'll stab you in the back any time that you can give them a chance. So in collaboration with Julian DeFreitas, we tried to look at these different groups of people and how they think about these questions. We found was something pretty striking. So if you tell participants, imagine there's this person who's caught between different forces. Part of her is drawing her to doing the morally good thing. Part of her is drawing her toward doing the morally bad thing. Now make a guess. What is she going to do? Some participants, the ones who have a really high opinion of human beings, tend to say she's going to do the good things. Other participants, participants who explicitly say that human beings are basically awful, say, I predict she's going to do the bad thing. But now suppose you ask all those participants, which of those two things is her true self? Then there's no difference between the people who are really Pollyannish and the people who are really misanthropic. They all say the part that's drawing her toward doing the good thing is her true self. So misanthropic people, they think you're a terrible person, but it's not because they think your true self is bad. They think you're a terrible person because they think you're never going to act on your true self. Well, I got to say that confirms a suspicion I've had for a while that misanthropy is ultimately a fashion choice. <laughs> right. So it's not it, it's not like this naive Pollyanna-ish view because it still allows for a little bit of misanthropy because you can still think that a person's in the immediate future or like not following their true self is going to do a lot of terrible things. And maybe they'll never actually, in fact, get a chance to even be faithful to their true self. Maybe just things aren't going to go well in their life and they're never going to live up to their true self. So that's the way that a lack of faith in people's ultimate goodness can kind of come back in here. You know, I think you could even see this idea that the true self is good as being a sort of negative view about people. So in my life, I've done some things that maybe are wrong. And then you could ask, have two different views about why I did those things. So one view that might seem a little bit more positive is you might think, well, I just honestly didn't know what the right thing to do was. Then the other view you might have about why I did those things was, my true self all along was calling me to do the right thing, but I was somehow pushing it away, ignoring it. This belief that the true self is good is giving us reason to adopt that second view, which you might think gives us an extra additional dose of condemnation, making it that not only did I do the wrong thing, but I even did know what the right thing to do was, but just ignored the voice telling me to do that. So another hypothesis that you and your colleagues have been considering is that some of these beliefs about a true self maybe apply as well outside the human case. So what are some examples of that? Yeah, exactly. So when you're thinking about a human being, you can think about just all the different qualities a human being has. Partly she's drawn to this, partly she's drawn to that. But you can also think there's something like the essence of this human being, the core of that human being. And then people tend to think of this essence or core, the true self, as being good. But suppose we're not thinking about a human being. Suppose we're just thinking about a scientific paper. Then it turns out people also have the same view. They think... Okay, in this paper, there are different parts, different paragraphs, but these paragraphs aren't all equal. Some of them are just things that happen to be in the paper. Some of them are kind of the core of the paper, the essence of the paper. And then, for judgments about the core or essence of a paper, people show exactly the same effect. They tend to pick out whatever they themselves regard as the good part of the paper, and they think, that is the core or essence of the paper, and the rest is just something that happens to be there. So I think what we're seeing in these judgments with the true self isn't something that people only think of with regard to human beings. It's a reflection of a much more general way that we think. That we think the core or essence of a paper is the good part of the paper, 
The core essence of a band is the best albums from that band. The core essence of the, our nation, the United States, is the good parts of the United States. And then in just the same way, if we were thinking about you, and I were thinking, well, what's the core essence of you? It would just be the good parts of you. Yeah, and I think this was already suggested maybe by the poetry example we looked at before. It would be weird to say, yes, um, this person's first 10 books of poetry were all amazing and revolutionary, and then this person did a really mediocre work afterwards that was not read by anybody, and the mediocre work is what they were, you know, that was their true self. It, you know, it seems like maybe these remarks about bands are kind of similar, except it's applying to the work rather than the person. But you, once you've thought about the poetry case, you can kind of see how you might have similar intuitions about, like, the artifact itself. Yeah, yeah. So suppose there was a whole book of poetry, like, say, Leaves of Grass. No one would think the true core or essence of Leaves of Grass is just the most mediocre poems within it. If we could only get rid of the really good poems, then we'd get back to what that text is really all about. No one seems to think that. And in the same way, no one seems to think the true essence of Matt Teichman is the most mediocre aspects of him. If we could only get rid of what makes you most so amazing, then we'd get at the true essence of who you really are. It seems like all these cases have something to do with people. Maybe um, there's this way we think about people as having a true inner core, an essence that maybe is responsible for making them the way they are. And maybe we have similar intuitions about albums by bands, poetry, so human artifacts. Maybe we have similar ideas as well about like bigger things like social institutions or groups of people working as a team. What this team was really trying to get at was XYZ. Is that the general category of things to which this kind of thinking applies? So in all of the work that we've done, we've always used things that involve people or things like poetry, bands, things that in some way involve something human. So if you look at our work, it's all about that. There has been some really interesting work by the philosophers David Rose and Jonathan Schaffer that looks at the idea that maybe we think teleologically even about things that don't involve any human being at all. So say you just have a rock, and imagine that this rock sort of provides some um, helpful nutrients to other animals. Then what Rose and Schaffer find is that there's this striking tendency where people will think, that there's what philosophers call a telos, or an end, or a purpose of the rock, such that somehow the essence of the rock is its tendency to provide this helpful nutrition for these animals. If you somehow could get rid of that aspect of the rock, it wouldn't even be that rock anymore. So maybe there is a tendency to sort of think about other things other than human beings in this way as somehow having purposes or ends. Yeah, you can kind of see maybe like objects of natural beauty, like, you know, Yosemite or Mount Everest or something. Maybe if somebody were to vandalize Mount Everest, they would be like, you know, we recovered as much of it as we could from the vandalism. And, you know, it's a shadow of its former great self. But that's what Mount Everest really was back in the day. You should have seen it before it was vandalized. I mean, I could see maybe in that kind of case. Wait, that's a really great example. We never did anything like this, but I don't know, maybe you can try it on yourself right now. So imagine some just natural changes took place over time, say in the Grand Canyon. And they changed it really radically in either one of two directions. One is it became much more beautiful than it now presently is. So it really differs from how it now is, because it became so much more beautiful. And then in the other case, imagine certain changes take place over time, so it becomes much less beautiful than it now is. And then in each case, ask yourself, is that thing that exists in the future really the Grand Canyon? I wonder if people would be likely to say somehow, in the case where it becomes much more beautiful, it really is still the Grand Canyon. In fact, maybe it's somehow fulfilling what the Grand Canyon was all about all along. 
But then maybe in the other case, you'd say, ah, oh, it's not even the Grand Canyon anymore. Now it's just a different thing. Yeah, I can totally see that. So it seems like we project this way of thinking onto lots of things. Or, I don't know, maybe I'm taking too much of a stance by calling it projecting. But, I mean, another kind of example, maybe we touched on it a little bit, but it seems like this comes up a lot when talking about religions or um, political ideologies. Somebody will mention some political ideology they believe in, and then, well, here's an example of a government that hewed to that ideology and whatever. There was riding the streets, people starved, it was a horrible situation. And then the response will often be, yeah, but they weren't really following the real idea behind ideology X. You know, that's a really beautiful example. So if you think about these notions like, say, truly being a conservative, truly being a liberal, or say truly being a philosopher, truly being a scientist, then at first when people talk in this way, you might think they're just using some sort of shoddy form of speech. But I think this notion that you're getting at really gets to the core of how we use those terms. So think about this notion of, say, really being a scientist. Suppose there's someone in the physics department who is spending all of her days running experiments and coming up with theories and so forth. But imagine she's not really trying to get the truth about these matters. So ultimately, all she's trying to do is just like get tenure and achieve professional success. Then people might say something like, there's a sense in which she's clearly a scientist. But ultimately, when you think about what it really means to be a scientist, about the essence of being a scientist, you'd have to say she's not a scientist at all. And it seems like that kind of talk isn't just somehow a loose form of speech, it's really showing us something fundamental about the concept of what it is to be a scientist. In just the same way we might say some kind of music isn't really rock and roll, it might be loud, might have guitars, but ultimately when you think about what it truly means to rock, that just doesn't rock at all. And you can see the same thing with many other notions. It seems like this is getting at something fundamental about the very concept we have in each of these cases. Yeah, so we've uncovered, I think, a lot of interesting facts about notions that would seem like they're different by definition, but which we strongly associate with each other nonetheless. True self, good, happy, etc., etc. Are there some like standard preconceptions or assumptions that you think this research should get us to re-examine? Or, like, what do you think is ultimately at stake in this line of investigation? Well, you know, I think that a lot of times people have this sense that when they're thinking about other people, they're just evaluating other people based on the evidence, evidence that comes from their behavior, from general facts that we know about how the world works. And their understanding of what they're doing when they're thinking about what another person's like just comes out of that understanding, out of an understanding of the evidence available and how they're making sense of it. But it seems like a lot of what this research is suggesting is that the really, the way we understand how other people are deep down is based not just on the evidence that we see from their behavior, but on something that we're bringing to it from our own moral conceptions, conceptions of what we think actually is morally good or morally bad. So I think maybe even in the cases where you most think that what you yourself are doing is just looking at someone's behavior and trying to make a guess about what causes it, maybe what you're really doing is starting out with certain views about what really is good and what really is bad, and then assuming that the other person is drawn at the level of her, his or her true self toward what's good. Do you think there really is such a thing as a true self, or is that just a myth? You know, it's a very difficult question to answer, and one that we're still thinking about. But I think this research that we've done so far at least has shed some light on how to think about that question. So one thing you might think we're talking about when we say that someone has a true self is that we're talking about, as it were, some part of the self, something within someone's mind. If you think about it that way, I think these kinds of experiments that we're talking about would show that people's notion seems to be pretty incoherent. There's no particular reason to think that thing within people's minds would be drawing them toward whatever actually is good. 
then maybe what we should do is not give up the view that there is a true self, but instead to give up the view that that's the right way of understanding what the true self is all about. So think again about the case of a band. Suppose the band puts out a few albums that you really like, and then later they put out an album that you think is terrible. You might say in that case, they're getting away from the true essence of what this band is really all about. But when you say that, you're not talking about a part of the band, say, for example, the drummer of the band. When you say something like, what this band is really all about, you're talking about something that's something like the deeper values that are realized by everything that the band does. And I think in the same way, if we say something like, Matt Teichman's true self, it's not right to think that this should be interpreted as meaning something like a certain part of Matt's mind. The right way of understanding it is something like the deeper values that are sort of realized by everything that Matt has been doing. Josh Nob, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll leave it to you to decide whether my true self also thanks you. <laughs> thanks for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod, And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening.